You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Good morning, church. Our reading today comes out of Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured down from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. First and foremost, I would like to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Now, I want to promise you that talking about the devil today on Mother's Day was not intentional. There is zero correlation here, so please do not draw any conclusions. I just want to say happy Mother's Day. Coincidentally, as I look at this passage here in Revelation uh, 12. What we do see, however, is that the woman is a picture of resilience and a picture of God's love and affection. And so we want to thank you to our, uh, our biological mothers, our adoptive mothers, and our spiritual mothers, essentially all the women in our lives and in our church. We are grateful for you, and we appreciate you deeply. We're, we're hoping and praying that you have a blessed day. Now, this Easter tide, we have been exploring the space between the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of his return, and really what it means to live and flourish in the already, but not yet. And as I've been mentioning, this space in between can be a very confusing place to navigate at times, especially when the scriptures describe the victory of the resurrection of Jesus, the victory. Jesus died, and then three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death on our behalf, and yet somehow, we experience the sting of these enemies. Sin is still present. Satan still sucks. 
death is still experienced. And so the question is, what's up with that? Did we miss the boat? Did we miss the irreversible tide of the resurrection? Was it really a victory? Revelation 12 helps us to make sense of what victory over Satan looks like in that space in between where we find ourselves. And one of the best ways to describe this is by looking at two important dates during World War II, D-Day and V-E Day. Now, D-Day was the battle at Normandy uh, on June 6, 1944, and it was believed really to be the decisive victory that secured victory over our enemy. It sealed the fate of our foes. And yet, even after this decisive victory, what we know history tells us is that the enemy held out fighting. They continued to fight to the very bitter end. It was over, and yet it wasn't over. And then there was VE Day, almost a year later on May 8th, 1945, when the final surrender and ceasefire occurred. But there was this significant time in between where the enemy continued to hurl its assaults at the allied troops. And that's what we are seeing pictured here in Revelation 12. Look at me in verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. That's where we find ourselves. In the angry bitter crossfires of a defeated foe. And so let's talk about that today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the drama, the dragon, and the decision. Let's look first at the drama. Now, the greatest stories that we have ever read or heard or watched were more than likely stories marked by dramatic tension. Tension is what makes a story interesting. In fact, it's a boring story until things get tense. One of the greatest literary devices an author has is the twist. It's the suspense. It's that, it's that tension that keeps you at the edge of your seat. It's why it's very hard to like watch a dramatic movie or a movie packed with suspense and then go to bed immediately after your heart rate's up and your stomach's kind of twisted. You're, you're emotionally invested in the story. You can't just turn it off and go to bed. It's suspenseful. Think about your favorite movie or book. When things get stirred up and when the stakes are high and, and, and the solution seems very, very impossible, that's just when things get interesting. And we, we love it and we hate it. Oscar Wilde put it this way. He said, the suspense is terrible. I hope it will last. Right? It's killing me, but I, but I, but I love it. And, and really, the true mark of a good story is one that draws you in, not just intellectually, but emotionally, where you go from being a casual observer to actually feeling it as if you were there. You begin to feel what the characters are feeling and experience what the characters are experiencing. You see yourself as an active participant in what is unfolding. But then you put down the book or you like turn off the TV or turn off the movie and then you walk away and you return to normal life a life that's very disconnected from that story that you were so involved in. 
But what the book of Revelation reveals to us is not just a story that we walk away from. This is telling us about the unfolding drama or the unfolding story of God that we're a part of. Where our lives are in the story and the story is in our lives. I'm reminded of the, of the movie, the never-ending story that, from my childhood where at the very end, Bastion realizes that this book that he's been reading involves him all along. And in a sense, this is our never-ending story. The hero, the villain, the conflict, the suspense, it all impacts and involves us, even when we put the book down, even if we're not even paying attention to the book. This is our never-ending story, so to speak. As the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so somehow the conflict of heaven is being experienced here on earth and the experiences of earth is a conflict in heaven and there's this connection. This is what we're seeing here. And what is that story? What is the story that we've been wrapped up into? Well, it's been said before that the Bible could be summed up like this. Here it is. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Think about it. From the very first pages of Scripture, we see that God curses the serpent and he makes this glorious promise of a future deliverer, the offspring of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and lift the curse on humanity, and we see that unfolding throughout the scriptures, coming to its climax in Jesus Christ. And here, the book of Revelation is just described in further detail. Kill the dragon, get the girl. And Revelation 12 is giving us this imagination-stirring illustration of that very mission of God. And so we see the characters. We see the hero. The hero is clearly Jesus Christ, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. The villain? Well, that one's pretty easy. That's the dragon, a.k.a. Satan or the devil. We'll talk a little bit about him in a minute. And the girl? Well, that's where we come into the story. The girl is God's people. And all throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people are referred to as God's beloved bride, the woman in the wilderness. And so John takes us on this very cosmic, very symbolic journey. And he borrows from ancient Hebrew Jewish tradition. He borrows from Greek and Roman mythology, all in order to describe for us how God defeats evil through his son Jesus Christ and to describe the conflict that we, his people, are now entangled in, in the meantime, in the already, but not yet. That is the drama. Secondly, let's look at the dragon. Now, Sun Tzu's The Art of War is an extremely ancient, important piece of uh, literature. It's a, an ancient military manual, and what he lays out is what he calls the essentials of military victory. And in this book, this like 2,500-year-old book, he, he, 
he pens these famous words. He says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, by way of reminder, this year we've been focusing on the theme of identity, really what it means to know God and know self and how those are linked and how those are two are important in our process of growth and our spiritual formation. But there is another vital part of our spiritual formation. There's another vital part of your growth process, and that is knowing your enemy. Understanding who your enemy is, understanding his tactics, and really knowing what you should be anticipating from him. And so the question I want to pose to you today is, do you know your enemy? Are you familiar with his tactics? Are you living aware of his presence? Because you need to be. The Bible sternly warns us that we should be. In 1 Peter 5, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Are you watchful? Are you vigilant? Or are you like most who are just living almost entirely oblivious to his presence in this world? A 19th century French poet once said that the devil's best trick was to convince us that he doesn't exist. He doesn't need to appear in like fury and fire as this fierce demonic force. So long as we just live like unaware of his presence. Think about the old myth of the Trojan horse. It's this picture of of him hiding in what we love. And what we admire in order to to penetrate the walls of our lives and the walls of our hearts. He doesn't come as this symbol of fierceness. He comes often attached to the things that we love most. And so let's consider what Romans 12 tells us about our adversary. What's initially evident is that the dragon, a.k.a. Satan, is an enemy of God. That's pretty obvious here. He is depicted as coming against God and against Jesus and against all of the hosts of heaven. He is clearly in rebellion against God's authority. He cannot stand that God's in charge and he is not. And so there's this cosmic battle unfolding involving Michael and his angelic army and the devil and his angelic army. And the dragon, we're told, is defeated. We'll talk about that in a bit. And so he and his demonic forces are cast down out of heaven. And so realizing that he can't defeat God, who can defeat God? He then turns his attention, listen to me, on God's people. Think about the movies or the stories that you love where the villain is coming against the the main character, but they realize when they can't get to him or her, they turn their attention on their family or their loved ones, the ones that they love and admire most. This is what's occurring as Satan focuses his efforts against the world, against humanity, against the apple of God's eye. 
The second thing about the dragon is that he is the deceiver of the whole world. He's an enemy of God, and he's a deceiver of the whole world. In fact, Jesus explicitly describes who the devil is and what he's like in John chapter 8. He says that the devil uh, is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he doesn't just deceive us. He is a deceiver. This is who he is. Therefore, this is what we should always be expecting from him. His weapon of choice is the distortion of truth, the misrepresentation of truth. Friend, do not anticipate pitchforks and like a little fiery uh, tail or all the little things that we imagine when we think of the devil. Instead, expect this, a little voice that sounds something like this. Did God actually say that? I don't think he meant it that way. Gosh, that's an extreme interpretation. Really? Yeah, maybe God did say it that way. Maybe God did say that. But what you don't understand is God doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to thrive. Really? You want to do that? You want to follow God's word? That doesn't make sense. See, in a post-truth culture, as our time has been described, it's not hard to see the evidence of Satan everywhere. His fingerprints are on almost everything. Finally, the dragon is described as the accuser of the brothers or the accuser of the church. Now, this is really important for us to understand here. Spiritual conflict isn't just military-like battle. It's a courtroom battle. In fact, one commentator notes that this whole scene here resembles a court. There's an accuser, a defense, a testimony, a verdict. Satan is depicted as this accuser. He's this evil prosecutor and evil informant. There's Michael and his angels. They kind of represent a sort of defense team. But wait a minute. Prosecutor, defense then who's on trial? You guessed it. We are. This is where it gets really good, and this is really where the suspense comes in. We're not just in the story or a part of the story. We are right in the thick of it, on trial. And what makes Satan such a good accuser is that all of his accusations are so painfully true. Think about it. He deceives the world. He distorts the truth. He tries to deceive us, God's people. But when he stands before the great judge of heaven, God himself, he doesn't lie. He doesn't need to exaggerate or distort or bend the truth about us. Our lives speak for themselves. Our sin, our thoughts, our selfishness, our interactions, they are all so God-damningly true. All Satan has to do is say, see, told you. you. Hey, big guy, you catching this? You watching this? Isn't that your son over there? Isn't that your daughter over there? Really? Are my eyes deceiving me? Or am I seeing them doing what they're not supposed to do? Over and over and over. 
essentially says, Your Honor, check the evidence. It's all here. Every incriminating detail. See, this is where the dilemma exists because Satan, who knows all of the legalities like the back of his scaly little hand, essentially says, for you to be a just God, Your Honor, the law requires for you to carry out swift punishment and let me remind you, Almighty One, this is your law in the first place. I didn't make this stuff up. You did. This is your law. This is your courtroom. This is your heaven. This is, this is yours. And they have broken your commands repeatedly, and it requires, if I'm reading this right, your justice. Clearly, this is a spiritual battle that we can't just turn around and run from. We're on the hook. And so the question is, what can be done? I'm glad you asked. That leads us to our final point, the decision. The decision. Verse 10 through 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. So despite all of the mounting evidence that's against us, files and files of recorded conversations and candid photographs and all those sort of things against us, God, the rightful judge, stands up, he reads the verdict, the decision is in, and the court of heaven finds them not guilty. And there's outrage in the court. There's commotion in the court. In fact, things get so out of control that the prosecutor, the accuser, is kicked out never to return. See, here's how God says that we have won our case. Here's how God says we have conquered and fair and square. This is how we have defeated our enemy. It's not by our strength. It's not by our might. It's not by our military tactics. It's not by our goodness. It's not because, well, we did these bad things, but our good outweighs. No. It's not based on our ability to wiggle out of our situation. Here it is. Please listen. Here is how we conquer. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Through Christ and belief and pronouncement of the gospel. This is how we conquer. Elsewhere in Scripture in Romans 8, we read this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can come against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We overcome as we stand in faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
This is the evidence that comes in that's submitted that totally undermines the accuser's case against us. Here it is, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's why this is important. This is why we are able to walk free. Because Jesus, the promised offspring, the Bible tells us, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus, the innocent one, took the rap. Let the condemnation, Jesus said, fall upon me. The gospel is that Jesus served the sentence in our place and then was vindicated through his resurrection. And now he stands as our ongoing defense. He is advocating for us, declaring day after day after day, this one walks free. This one is pardoned. This one is forgiven. One of my favorite hymns goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on Christ, and pardon me. Friend, what that means is our energy is not spent on defending ourselves and not trying to, like, prove our innocence. Because for those who have trusted upon Jesus Christ, that has already been settled. The decision is in. We have been determined by God to be conquerors, which gives us the boldness to face even the harshest of oppositions, even if it brings death itself. Because we know, as I said, the decision is in. No enemy, no sin, no demonic attack, not even death itself can have the last word over me. God's pronouncement of life, God's pronouncement of forgiveness is the truest thing about me and has the final word over my life and my eternity. Let me conclude with a couple thoughts. First is this. Defeat has not stopped the enemy's pursuit of us. It has only seemed to fuel his fire. That's what we see here. And what the enemy is going to attempt to do is to try to hurl everything he can at us. Life between D-Day and V-E Day, between the resurrection and Christ's return, is still marked by conflict. There is still conflict involved. There's this scene from the Lord of the Rings where there's this battle between Gandalf and Belrog and, you know, this fiery, fierce devil figure. And as the enemy is falling to his death, it seems like the scene gets calm, the, the enemy has de been defeated, and then all of a sudden this fiery whip comes up and latches hold of Gandalf and entangles him. What we see here is that even in Satan's fall, he's attempting to entangle us. The conflict continues. But here's the promise that we stand in. We battle not for victory, but from victory. Let me say that again. We battle not 
to secure the victory, we battle from an already secured victory. And the promise that we stand in is that God is going to leverage all of heaven and earth's resources in order to allow us to stand faithfully and obediently in that victory until Jesus Christ returns to make his and our enemies his final footstool. And so I want to conclude with a benediction. We don't typically read this benediction, probably because it's, I don't know, a little bit odd and it takes some explanation, but I think it is probably the most fitting benediction to leave you with today. So hear these words of God over you. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace and peace.